0: Oh! Oh, gracious, Hello, everyone, welcome to Around the Core Squash podcast. On today's show, we are excited to welcome the Squash Kills founder and CEO Jethro Binns. Jethro talks about his new documentary, which was released last week at Bronx Tale. This is not a remake of the 93 movie with Bobby De Niro and Joe Pesci, but a real life story about the urban squash program City Squash. Jethro also gives us a little bit of a you heard it here first in what he has got planned in the future. Before all that, Jamal will lead us through the fantasy British Open, which will lead the panel to the goat question. My name is Arthur Gaskin and with me here as ever is Stuart Crawford, Christopher Sackfee and Jamal Collender. How you doing, fellas?
1: Good, thanks. What's up, Arthur? How you doing?
0: Killing the enthusiasm. (laughs) <laughs> Yo, Stewart, you, ha- you shaved a couple of minutes off your marathon, half marathon last week. courtesy of see a pair of shoes. The boys accuse you of cheating. I'm assuming since then you've ordered some EPO and you've given another crack to see if you could shave another few minutes off.
1: Yeah, well, I watched a little bit of the Lance Armstrong documentary after the the last dance, so I yeah, felt like the next step. Yeah, yeah, the next step
0: has to be to
1: get some blood transfusions, testosterone, human growth, growth hormone. Like, I'm ready to go.
2: Yeah, the shoes. The shoes are a gateway drug. Paper flies, guys. <laughs> they are. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's to cover the real stuff. <laughs> uh, Chris, has the uh, has, has the padding arrived for your bike?
2: The padding has arrived. Still need a pump, and I'm a little nervous to go out and get a flat without a pump. So I'm waiting on the pump now. But um, had a good had a good jog today got my money's worth i i I made the rookie mistake of of uh gpsing and and didn't put in that i was going to be running and it gave me the 2.5 miles um the way the crow flies and ended up going about four so you know 30 minutes in i was wondering wondering how long that run was going to be but didn't envy stewart when i know he runs uh a lot more than that every day
1: i've got some bad news for you chris anything under five miles doesn't count (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> <laughs> it's a warm-up, right, it's too. Exactly. Jamal, <laughs> man. Uh, kind of the same old, same old uh, virtual squash training. I guess I'm dabbling in cooking a little bit more, and you know, so drowning off um,
0: the frozen food.
3: Um, somewhat. I mean, Trader Joe's frozen food is still quite amazing, and I'm still keeping them in business somewhat. But um, but yeah, the modest things, progress. progress. Exactly, you know, cooking you know twice a week instead of once a week, but um, but having to drown out the amazingly horrible flavors that are coming out of my my pan with large amounts of beer in one. Small steps, Jamal. Small Small steps. (laughs) It's adding some flavor, that's it.
0: (laughs) Lovely stuff. Any news, Stu? What's happening in the squash world? Well, the, the big news in the
1: US, certainly in terms of college squash, is the news that brown squash has been cut as a varsity program and we actually just released a special bonus episode this week by the time you hear this probably last week where we look into that and we interview three former players uh, and get their perspective on it but yeah sad news for college sports in the us
0: check it out on itunes
1: and spotify <laughs>
0: <laughs> so jamal uh, fantasy british open talk us through it who won seedings what went down
3: it had a very interesting seeding arrangement, so the, for the, the top 16 seeds were the previous winners in chronological order, or backwards, reverse chronological order, and then, then the last 16 players were topped off by, I believe, the top 16 players um, currently. So in the semifinals on the men's side, we had Nick Matthew playing Jahangir Khan, and the viewers voted for Jahangir Khan and four. On the other side of the draw, we had Rami Ashur versus Jahangir Khan, and Rami Ashur was voted in as a very close 3-2 winner. So the final between was between Rami and Jahangir Khan, and Jahangir Khan takes the final 3-2. So he very cheekily sent a tweet to squash site saying, oh wow, won my 11th British Open title in a row after 29 years. Thank you everyone for all your votes and support. Stay blessed. Gotta give it to, to Jahangir, always classy, always funny. What a gang. eight gangs. Possibly the GOAT. On the women's side, we have in the semifinals, Heather McKay playing Michelle Martin. Heather McKay was the victor, a 3-1 victor. And the other side of the draw, we have Nicole David playing Sarah Fitzgerald. And Nicole David came out as a 3-2 winner. And in the final, Nicole David beat Heather McKay in five games as well. So both finals went to five games. Both very close margins of victory for Nicole and Chahangar Khan. So I guess this now leads us into uh, the debate. The age-old question, who is the greatest player of all time? Arthur, who do you think is the GOAT in squash?
0: There's a list, man. When the GOAT question is sent my way, I feel the GOAT's contribution goes beyond the squash court and what an individual does for the sport is part of the equation for me. So my GOAT is six-time British Open champion Jonah Barrington. He revolutionised the sport. He's responsible for squash going professional. And I'm sure someone is going to do it. But we're super lucky. It was a character like Jonah with so much charisma, super engaging, appealing, amongst a million other things. Some of his matches are legendary. And probably his most famous one would be his 1972 British Open final win against Jeff Hunt in seven in the fifth. And both men. You know, there's pictures of both men coming off the court absolutely goosed. He was also responsible for the squash boom in the 70s. He got great exposure for the sport in the BBC, did an, ex- uh, did an appearance on the show All Stars, which was a show that had athletes across all of the sports come in to compete in like a physical contest, something like a heptathlon, and he wiped the floor with it and show the world how physically demanding squash was and how physically strong and fit and fast squash players were and had to be. Yeah. I mean, for me, he was my biggest inspiration growing up. His autobiography was my training Bible. I'd read it during the summer, uh, just before summer training. And in the winters, he was doing long runs in the cricket field. So I'd be getting up at 6 a.m. with the hood up, running up and down Puppers Mill Road, living the dream for, you know, 70, 80 minute runs before training at the courts and yeah i think we can all be thankful for jonah as you know squash is now our life so yeah i think for me it's it's jonah barrington all the way what do you say to that
2: (laughs) uh i i love it arthur you know i i really wanted to back my uh canadian guy jp here but you know tough one to win i think if we're we're talking prime i think it's it's hard to hard to argue against anyone in their prime because at the you know at their time they were they were beating everyone and but i am gonna go with you know the person i think who had the strongest career and you know absolute dominator which earned him the name the conqueror Jahanger khan <laughs> the guy won the world amateur championships at 15 years old he won the worlds and the British seniors at 17 years old, and we were just discussing offline a little. Like that just does not happen anymore. That anyone in any sport as a 17-year-old. I mean, there probably is someone. I'll probably be proven wrong. Um, luckily, we don't have enough Twitter followers to uh, troll me, but um,
3: <laughs> not yet.
2: But uh, you know, 17 and 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 being that dominant in a sport like squash is is impressive. I mean, sixty-one titles, six world championships, with three runners-up, ten British Opens in a row, and then the eleventh in the Fantasy Land. Five and a half years unbeaten over five hundred and fifty-five matches um, is pretty insane. Yeah, I just think uh, you know the the results speak for themselves. I think it's always interesting to to hear people talk about. He's one of those guys that when a current professional does something in an elite way and gets compared to you know Jahangir it's like you know you know that carries a lot of weight so
1: it's interesting you bring that up about how early they sort of reached the top of the game and actually when I was doing a little bit of research for this Jansher and Jahangir both reached number one in the world at the age of 18 and I was just trying to do some comparison and see if there was any sort of modern day equivalent and the only two people that get even close are Rami and Shabagi. Rami and Shabagi both made the top twenty while they were still juniors at eighteen. They didn't quite make the top ten while they were juniors. They both made the top ten the year after at nineteen. Rami actually went on to be number two in the world when he was still nineteen, but neither of them made number one in the world until, in Rami's case, he was twenty-two when he first got to number one in the world, and in Shabagi's case, he was twenty-three when he first made number one in the world. So. Just shows you how much things have changed, and just some of the feats that were being achieved back then just probably aren't realistic these days.
3: Stu, you kind of stole part of my argument for uh, for the player that I consider the goat. So my pick would be John Shur Khan, even though I work with Peter Nickel. Um, John Tru would be my pick, as Chris said. Uh, you know, both Jahangir and and John Tru, they you know they got to the top of the game very quickly, both at the age of eighteen. John Shur Khan was World Junior champion in 1986 at the age of seventeen, and the very next year won. The first of his eight World Open World Open titles. So yeah, my pick would be would be John Sher, possibly the goat. All right, Stu. All right, Stu. On to you, Tommy.
0: What, what do you got for the goat? I, I've I'm sensing some big some big ones.
1: Well, I've I've done extensive research on this, and um, and I guess it get it comes back to what you value. So do you value consistency and longevity, and the guys that you're talking about that were able to stay at the top of the game for a long period of time and assert the dominance over the sport, or or do you look at what I would refer to as their peak. And there's various stats you can use, whether it's the number of titles they won or the number of weeks they spent at number one in the world. To me, there's only a handful of players that you can even really put into the debate, and I think we've covered most of them. The other ones I would throw in there that you could probably make a case for would be uh, Jeff Hunt, obviously, and then Peter, who's been mentioned, and Jonathan as well. More recently, I think there's probably five players that could be considered amongst, maybe not at the very, very top, but certainly amongst that group. One is obviously Shabagi, who of the current top players are certainly this century. He's actually spent the most number of months at number one. So Jansher is the all-time leader on the men's side with 97. Jahangir was only three behind on 94 months at number one in the world. Peter Nicol was 60. But then you go to Shabagi at 45, Shabana at 30. And then interestingly, Rami, uh, Greg Gauthier and Nick Matthew were all within a couple of months at 21, 20 and 19. So there's a lot of factors. You can also obviously look at major titles, whether it's World Opens or British Opens. You can look at head-to-heads. But I'm going to make a case for Rami during a fairly limited period of his career, specifically between 2012 and 2013. So, so that entire season, he played eight events and he won every single one of them. He didn't lose a match for, I think it was about 17 months. He actually lost in the final of the British Open at the end of the previous season to Nick Matthew and then came back the year after or the season after and was unbeaten until the following years World Championships, which I think...
0: Like I he say, actually was... didn't even play that much. Uh, it was against Nick and he yeah. withdrew before. I remember that, yeah.
1: No, he did start it, but then he retired with injury. Um, Stan corrected. Yeah, but I just feel like I've, I've watched a lot of squash. I've seen Jansher and Jahangir and I've even seen a tiny bit of jeff and jonah and in my mind no one has ever played the game as well as Rami did during that spell i was fortunate enough to be quite heavily involved in the sport around there i saw him play live a few times and i just feel like the level that he was playing at around then was just unmatched in the history of the game in terms of obviously when he came on the tour at the start people were just amazed by his skills and the way he sort of played in a really unique way but I think in that period, he'd got himself really fit. I think if you go back and look at videos, you can see how lean he is and just how consistent he is. He's not playing the same sort of high-risk squash because he's so confident in his ability to just work people around the court that some of that, I think some people could occasionally get wins over him just by relying on him making errors because he had to, well, he didn't have to, but he did play a quite high-risk brand of squash. But the fact that he was unbeaten during that whole season just shows that he obviously wasn't taking as many risks um he ended up winning he was unbeaten for 53 matches i think he 49 on the psa tour like i say he won eight tournaments that season but the following season he also won the first tournament so he was unbeaten in nine events and he also played the world teams that that summer where he played four more matches i think he played nick and greg and also beat them so my case is for not necessarily the goat, but the greatest player to ever play the game at that point in time for me was Rami during that season.
0: And what about Nicole David?
1: Like I said, one of the things you can look at is the number of months that players have spent as number one in the world. And actually, across the men's and the women's game, Nicole leads the way on that front. With so she was number one in the world for 112 months, which is over
0: nine years nine years imagine that just to stay motivated to be at the top of a top of your sport for that long it's just incredible it must have been mentally exhausting at times what a legend yeah
1: that was always one of the most impressive things about nicole was a couple of things one was just the way that she was able to stay motivated and focused and also how humble she seemed uh, how she didn't seem to be overly affected by it. I'm sure there was a lot of pressure on her, but she seemed to handle it so well. Um, And yeah, throughout that period, she was just absolutely a dominant player. Um, Just talking about Rami being unbeaten for whole full season. Nicole actually didn't go any season unbeaten, but she did go two full calendar years. So basically like the second half of one season leading into the first half of the following season. So she did that in 2008 and 2010. She didn't lose a single match in either of those years.
3: <laughs> wow. I just wanted to go back to something that Arthur said a little bit earlier. Once again, with all these debates, and this goes across any and every sport, You know, the definition of, of the GOAT can be taken many, many different ways. It could be you know, most dominant. So if for me, if, if, if we're looking at most dominant, for me it has to be Heather McKay. I, I unfortunately have never seen her play. For those that don't know, she... She played in the 60s and 70s, but she won 16 consecutive British Open titles, and she also lost in her entire career, she lost two matches, which, I mean, that, that I, I can't, I just can't fathom that. She lost two matches in her entire career. She's number one for almost 20 years. I mean, that's, as I said, I don't know much about the strength of her competition, but if that doesn't show pure dominance, I don't know what else does.
1: It's also hard to put that into context, Jamal, when you like you say, I've certainly never seen her play, not aware of any videos out there of her playing matches. So it's difficult to know where that fits within the the wider sort of history of the game. Someone that certainly was a sort of early pioneer just after that was Chris. I think you have a connection to this woman, but Sue Sue Dubois won eight British Opens and uh for world opens she was also second on the list of most time spent at world number one just seven months behind nicole david actually
2: and, and a, a cool cool fact um when she retired in 92 she was the australian the british the french the hong kong the irish the new zealand the scottish the swedish and the world champion Uh, she was kind of the reigning champ in that many events when she retired kind of a legend uh, not kind of a legend full-on legend I got to meet her her brother was my coach at Cornell Mark the boy shout out Mac Uh, (laughs) just awesome awesome guy Um, really cool family unreal squash family and um, yeah just hearing stories from Mark about her I kind of knew about her She's, she's a dame commander of the order of New Zealand and the British Empire, just, you know, 105 months at number one and four years and 10 months consecutively as well. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think uh, I got a chance to meet her when I was in New Zealand and pretty larger than life personality. And she does a ton over there in, in sport and in politics. And I, I th- kind of think that's cool. I, I don't know, you know, I don't know as much about Jahangir and Jonsher and Jonah, but, you know, from hearing Arthur talk about Jonah and knowing uh, a few more of our kind of contemporary world number ones, I, there's there's a pattern. Like, these guys and, and women are all just uh, larger-than-life personalities, and, and it, there's some, I don't know, I see a huge... Um, Huge parallel there across a lot of the the kind of world champs in in our sport.
1: Yeah, I think that's one of the things that like it's really hard to compare these players because they were all great at their own time, and most of them would have probably found a way to be great regardless of when they were playing. I mean, I think Peter Nichol talks about this, but if you stuck him in with Jahangir, he would have worked relentlessly to try and beat Jahangir because that was what he was up against at that moment in time. Just in the same way, I don't think you can make the argument that Jahangir wouldn't be competitive now because, again, I'm sure that with his drive and determination and competitive spirit, he would go out there and do everything that he needed. And if that meant that he had to learn to take the ball short and use the front of the court more than he maybe did back then, he would have worked on that and he would have got good at that. And I'm sure he would have found a way. Yes. So one other interesting debate not necessarily about the greatest player, but for me, the greatest era in squash. Uh, and this relates to retiring in your prime. is In sort of 2005, 2006, I think was the strongest that professional squash has ever been. And we hear a lot these days about games getting stronger and there's more depth and there's, there's just a constant progress and evolution. I think if you go back to 2005, 2006, that is the greatest single season in the history of squash. I'm just going to read out the, the world rankings um around that time had so this is the January 2006 World Rankings. So it was Jonathan Power number one, Amr Shabana number two, Anthony Ricketts number three, Palmer four, Linku five, Will Strop, six, Peter Nichols seven, Beachos eight, Nick Matthew nine, John White ten, Kareem Darwish eleven, Gautier twelve. Now Every single player in that top 12, apart from Anthony Ricketts, was number one in the world at some point in their career. Um, and what that meant actually was that in some of those draws around that era um, you had four four of those players outside the top eight playing against guys in the top eight just to make it into the quarterfinals. finals. So, said Ricketts was the only player that didn't make it to number one. But actually, the last tournament of that year, before those rankings were released, he actually played Jonathan Power in the final in Saudi Arabia. That's
0: right. The winner, yeah. of,
1: that, the winner of that match would take over as number one in January, and Power actually won it, which is why he was number one and Ricketts was only number three. But in that event... Sorry, just the, to put
0: you there. Absolute ding-dong of a match, as you were.
1: <laughs> Agreed. But actually, the second round of that that tournament... Had the following matchups to make it into the quarterfinals. You had Lincoln versus Gautier, you had Peter Nichol against John White, you had Nick Matthew against Shabana, and you had Darwish against Palmer. Now, every single one of those ma- matchups at some point was a major final and could have been a major final even at that point in time. And they were playing in the second round just to get into the last eight. I struggled to see how you can have an era that was stronger than that. I did actually a, a little bit of math. So if you add up the total number of months that each of them was number one in the world, and like I say, that applies to everyone except Ricketts, they were number one in the world for a combined total of 16 years, 192 months.
0: Jeez, <laughs> It's not bad.
1: And it, was this, it was this weird like, hybrid of eras where you had, it was actually the last season on tour for uh, Peter Nicol and Jonathan Power, Um, I think Beachhill retired not too long after that, but then you also had younger guys like Matthew and Willstrop and Gauthier coming through. You had guys like uh, Linku and Palmer probably in their prime. Rickett certainly was in his prime at that point. Beachhill was playing really good squash. Um, Shabana was just kind of on the the up. So to me, that was this perfect sort of melting point of the late 90s era of power and nickel, combining with what? became the era that most of us know now with some of the guys that have been on the tour until fairly recently
0: and to be fair to Ricketts his career was cut short with knee injury so I think he retired like 27 or 28 I
3: think it was 28
0: 28 yeah yeah
1: anyway the reason I brought that up was just because um Jonathan a couple of months later actually retired as world number one so he was number one in the world in the January rankings. He then lost it in February and then got it back in the March rankings and then retired that month as the world number one, which is pretty incredible.
3: Legend. And, a,
1: and also completely in character with Jonathan's
3: uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. It's like his, uh, uh, his mic dropper. Exactly.
0: Hmm. You know, Stuart, you talk about eras for the men's in the men's game and 2005, 2006, I think for the women's game, 2017 has a similar feel to it where in the top 10 you had, not in its specific order, but you had Shabini, Renima Walili Laura Mazzaro, Nicole David, Camille Serm, Noral Tayeb, mm-hmm. uh, Noran Goar, and there's, there's some class players just behind that as well like uh, Alison Waters, Jane Perry, Amanda Amanda Amanda, Sovy, Amanda, Joel King, Joel King, I mean, that is a serious, serious uh, yeah. serious group of players there that really have, like there's every single one of those players has won a major title. And I think maybe if we look back at 2017 and 10 years, give or take, we could be looking at something similar with the women's game at that stage when you already have another retired, Laura and Nicole, Reneem and Shabini have been number one in the world. Behind them is it you know, is a, is a, some real challengers for that number one spot in Camille Serm Noral Tayeb, Noran Gore, uh, and then Joelle King. Like she's won a couple of major titles. She's been as high as three in the world.
1: Yeah, I, I think there's definitely an argument that in the women's side that the game is getting stronger. Certainly in the depth that you're talking about, um, number of players that can be competitive and win major titles is being extended all the time. Um, and Yeah, I don't think that was necessarily the case. So back in the 90s, you had sort of Michelle Martin and then Sarah Fitzgerald pretty much dominating for most of that that period. Um, And then obviously Nicole came along and she dominated for a pretty significant period. But since then, I think it's been a lot more open and it also makes it a lot more exciting when you go into these events and you're not sure who's even going to make the final, let alone win. that can be upsets early on
2: yeah it's it's always interesting to look back on dynasties and um you kind of they're a cool story but when you're living through them like the golden state warriors is the example i'll bring up a lot of people are like why should we even watch the nba the golden state warriors are just going to dominate think about these people who didn't lose a match for four, five, eight years in squash. It At the time, I mean, I think people were witnessing legends at their craft, but it couldn't have been that exciting as compared to when you're watching tournaments nowadays. I think there's favorites, but it, it is a little more open. And it's definitely more exciting, I think, as, as a fan. Totally. Yeah, you know,
1: One of the things for the current generation that interests me is what uh, Shabini goes on and achieves because obviously she's still quite young. She's already won four World Championships and uh, two British Opens. She's only 24, I believe. Um, So realistically, she stays healthy and I know she's had some injury problems recently, but she could have another 10 years at the top of the game and there's a lot more that she could achieve. So I think whether she can get herself in the mix with... I think the, the, the five best players of all time on the women's side is pretty clearly Nicole, obviously, Susan, who we've talked about, Michelle Martin and Sarah Fitzgerald and Heather Mackay. So I don't think there's much debate about that, but I think there's definitely a case that Shabini can go on and certainly put herself in the mix. Um, I also think that one of the most incredible achievements in our sport at any level is Shabini winning the World Junior Championships when she was 13 years old, which is just phenomenal when you think about it. like If you had someone in your home country being crowned National Junior Champion when they were 13, you would think, oh my God, how's this kid done it? But to do that on a world stage is just something quite remarkable, I think.
2: I mean, just to be the Egyptian, under 19 champion at 13 right Oh, under really fifteen insane. champion, <laughs> and then and then to say the world champion is yeah takes it to a whole nother level i
1: think if you're the egyptian junior champion you're automatically given the world's right
3: <laughs> in this day and age pretty much so from a junior perspective
0: shabini could be
3: possibly the goat
0: all right fellas moving on happy days we welcome to the show jethro bins the ceo and the founder of the online coaching platform squash skills jethro talks to us a little bit about the muse for a bronx tale the documentary he released a week ago and squash gills and a few other things that he has going on in the pipeline and also his take on who is the goat okay everyone well, we have a special guest today Jethro Bins. In a former life, he was a professional squash player, reached a career-high of 86 in the world. He represented Wales at multiple European and World Championships. Upon retiring, he founded, and is also now the CEO, Squash Guild, an online coaching platform that acts as a resource for squash players and coaches around the world. Last Sunday, Jethro released the documentary, A Bronx Tale, a short feature film on the urban squash programme, City Squash, which we will get into. Jethro, thanks for coming on the show. I know you're a busy man. How are you doing?
4: Yeah, good man. Good. Just trying to adjust to, you know, lockdown life or the emergence out of our lockdown life over here in, well, I'm spending my time between Wales and Bristol, but yeah, doing, doing all right.
0: Lovely. It's a lovely looking tash you got going on. Thanks, pal. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I heard you had a good ginger beard on the go, huh? Oh yeah, it was great. It was patchy
0: though. It was like, Bits, bits on the <laughs> cheeks that weren't there, and then I just had this thing that was, it was actually more grown underneath my chin, to be honest. <laughs> like a little leprechaun. Uh, yeah, l- like that, yeah. <laughs> a six foot one leprechaun.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I didn't recognise you when you got rid of it either, right?
0: No, oh, yeah. <laughs> so I shaved it, uh, so jet out, uh six o'clock, Nola's getting ready for bed, I go in, I shave it off. And uh, I come back out and I go give her a kiss, good night, or whatever, and she started crying. <laughs> she didn't know who I was. <laughs> Where's dad <that> gone? <laughs> yeah, pretty much, yeah. Who's this, young, who's this young
2: voice? <laughs> uh, is that my brother?
0: That's <laughs> your fascia. Um, so, yeah, so uh, what was. So, a Bronx tale came out on Sunday. We all watched it, thought it was it was great. What was the motivation or how did that come
4: about to be honest it was never planned it came about as a bit of a mistake in the sense that um i first chatted to hadrian stiff here in bristol and uh, over a beer he he'd said oh one person you should speak to is brian patterson Uh, i saw him speak at a coaching conference and when he spoke uh, there was just so much emotion there that you know. Hadrian said it brought him to tears listening to him talk about the work that was being done uh, over in the SEA. So I got in touch with Brian, and he happened to be in the UK. And we went down to Leon Solon and was just going to do an interview with Brian. That was kind of what it was supposed to be, um, just in the UK. And we did the interview. It was great. We, we listened to Brian's life story, but as part of that interview, he touched upon or you know i guess a significant part of it was the work that was going on in the states and then we ended up just sitting on that uh on that content for for quite some time probably six months or so uh and then i came over to new york was filming with peter uh, was meeting up with rami i think i was supposed to do some film with granty maybe um but something got cancelled and there was a little window in this trip to new york and we said oh, do you know what would be great would be why don't we go and try and film with the kids that Brian talked about to add some content to the film, um, and then in a similar tip, we we said, "Oh, well, let's try and speak to Tim." Obviously, Tim Wyant, um, the, the founder of the SEA. So we met up with him uh, in hotel room in New York and, and did that interview. And then we ended up going off to to see the kids in action. And what transpired was kind of that was where the magic of the film really came about. I think was listening to the kids talk about the impact that it had, had on on their lives. You know. It, it came out in the film um but obviously we then were able to go and get all the love all the lovely shots around the bronx and um you know seeing the kids and the smiles on court and brian in action with the coaching it suddenly we had all this material um and then it was like oh wonder how we can stitch this together so it was it was a truly organic process and nothing was storyboarded nothing was planned it was just three different locations of people ultimately talking passionately about squash and the story and, you know, the history of the SEA. And um, yeah, that passion just kind of really came out. And then that coupled with the, you know, James's great camera work and videographer skills meant that we actually got something that was was pretty compelling and, and pretty beautiful. And um, yeah, so it was, it was genuinely organic process that wasn't wasn't planned. So is Urban
1: Squash something that you were aware of? Because obviously it's a predominantly American thing. And I know there's a few programmes now in the UK, but was it something guess, that you had an interest in?
4: Or? Yeah, I mean, we donated last year with Amanda. And it's something I've been aware of, I guess, for the last few years, but not having a clear picture or a clear understanding of what was going on. So you know, Peter, as founder of Squash Skills, we've had conversations about the SEA and and the work that's been done um but i you know hadn't explicitly been aware of the, the ins and outs of it or we hadn't done any other although that being said uh a few years ago we had some content on from renato who runs the program over in san diego um and he was offering advice on how to make squash fun for kids so there was there were some elements uh i guess existing on squash skills a, a few years ago but you know from a, a strictly personal involvement i hadn't um had a huge amount to do with it until until the film really
1: yeah the other thing that struck me was just the timing of it which i guess is coincidental but with all the things that are happening in the us it seems like a perfect time to release it and yeah it just seems so much more impactful given the demographic that they tend to drop on
4: yeah it's certainly an interesting one i mean it's kind of a perfect time and also a, a, a difficult time in that there's so much noise and uh, you know on social media and you know in the greatest respects there's a lot of voices on social media at at the moment so cutting through with a message about squash uh with those communities you know had its challenges but we felt that it was you know a great time to release some positivity around the programs and and show the support of the the squash community is able to offer to, to some of these underprivileged kids in in those underprivileged communities so yeah it was it was an interesting time to be releasing it during that week and obviously tensions are are still high at the moment but um yeah definitely it wasn't it wasn't planned it was it was very much coincidental but yeah i mean the bronx is being incredibly hard here in multiple in multiple ways at the moment isn't it with with the impact of coronavirus and then obviously racial tensions. so um you know i think it was nice to to show the the goodwill that exists within the squash community and and, and see the power that power of sport and, and the power of squash the and the impact it can have on these young people's lives so yeah the timing was diff- interesting but also also great yeah
2: yeah yeah i think this whole pandemic's been um especially hard on on some of these programs because obviously the educational element is is probably the most critical um and they the public schools and, and a lot of these families, I think, struggle to have the, the online capabilities that a lot of other kids are getting. So it's, uh, I know it's been challenging. Uh, we work pretty closely with Street Squash in Harlem, uh, not too far from the Bronx, of course. So I've, I've been kind of keeping in touch with them and, and we're hoping that, that our uh, players at Columbia can can offer a little bit of support over the summer. But it's so much of what, These groups do is provide that location and teaching and face to face interaction. And with that being lost, I mean, I think it is a good time to highlight these programs, hopefully get a few more people looking to help because they are, they are hit a little bit harder than than the rest of us right now no that's that's that's
4: absolutely the case i mean it's been good with since since the film's released we've had some some really positive feedback and i've had some people contact from from sweden saying they'd love to get get something similar set up over here in europe so you know the impact is is being felt but you know it's just nice to get that message out you know i I think you you asked me if i was aware of of the impact of of the programs and you know i am i've been on the edge of it for a number of years but also incredibly invested in the sport you know so i think it probably it is eye opening for the for the wider squash community certainly certainly beyond the us you know as to to what's going on and the power of these programs
0: um, i think one of the things one of the most powerful messages i saw in the documentary was one of the students talking about what the program means to her and and the students and what it does and one of the lines that she said it teaches empathy and sometimes mm-hmm. my teammates they're having a bad day, and and I picked them up, and almost saying it in such a way that when she has a bad day, her teammates pick her up, and having that support with her friends in that environment, and and obviously it's it's host, the BP is just Brian's just just a legend, but uh, I just thought that was just so moving and powerful.
4: Yeah, I, there, there's a few moments throughout the film. I mean, I've, I'm not going to lie, I've, I've caught myself with a tear in my eye about five or six times during at different phases you through softy. the edit. <laughs> don't pretend you didn't have one man come on <laughs> where's your heart hard as nails huh <laughs> <laughs> um i remember you know, i remember sitting there actually with my dad and it brought a tear to his eye you know kind of you know three or four months ago watching a, a pilot of it so there's some really emotional points in there and you know it's real that those the smile on their faces um the, the impact that squash is having on their lives you know the message at the end was squash is squash changes lives right and it's genuinely true in there and you know the the leaderships and the or the leadership qualities of brian and you know as a role model i mean what better role model could you ask for as a as a kid than than bp uh to look up to over the course of, of six years you know you can see he's he's tough on them right at times when he needs to be but then as he said he feels like he can be a surrogate father so yeah the the emotional impact of the film was surprising you know if you had have told me that we would make a film on squash skills that is 20 minutes long when people end up in tears watching i would have been very surprised kind of <laughs> well, whenever you would have said that to me but yeah it, it was it was surprisingly powerful actually
2: definitely um just switching gears for a sec here like curious you know it's been close to three months um in kind of the northeast united states now we where we all are, um, since everyone went into lockdown and, and kind of had to do a mad scramble to take some coaching efforts um, on lo- online, virtual. So what made, you know, what year did did you think of Squash Gills or get it going? And what made you think, you know, to go virtual um, before before everyone else or in a way that you did?
4: it was two, 2012 we launched and there was probably an 18 month period of i guess prep and faffing around with it and trying to figure out how to operate a camera and how to edit <laughs> edit videos because that definitely wasn't a skill set of mine um, yeah so so it was a long time ago actually it was a, a friend of mine at the time um, from abgavenny um, back in wales uh, he he'd started playing tennis and then he'd seen some clips on on youtube uh, there was a collegiate tennis player who was offering some coaching advice fuzzy yellow balls uh, the the channel was called and he was like oh can't, can't we do this for squash i was about i was ranked about 90 in the world at the time and he was like look he was quite entrepreneurial he said um isn't this something you can do and uh, i said well maybe and the first videos were laughable i actually was so nervous <laughs> i remember having to have a can of kind of fosters just out of shot like between <laughs> takes to, to try and make sense of what was going on, um, but it, it kind of broke down with with him as a as a business partner, and then and then Pete got involved, and um, I just realised that there was a bit of a community. We started the Facebook page, started offering coaching advice on on the Facebook page, and this community grew. And then and then was that was it? You know, we were first to first to market, I guess. Um, obviously, being partnered with Peter really helped. You know, his connections at the time. You looked at the players that we had on uh, in the early days although the quality of the the productions was pretty shoddy uh the names were you know thierry Lincou david palmer john white and, uh obviously pete you know it was the it was the who's who of of squash and that gave us kind of instant credibility so it was yeah 2012 um and we just just happened I, well, I guess just happened to be in the right place at the at the right time
2: very cool yeah i know i i used it quite a bit when i was um coaching alone at a school called dickinson college and it was almost like my way of having a a little bit of interaction with other coaches because i didn't have that soundboard to bounce ideas off and uh yeah i've always enjoyed the product um and just curious so since since this kind of like world lockdown has started have you started any new initiatives with squash skills i think there's a training club was that before lockdown or did that come about because of lockdown?
4: Yes, yeah, so we, we ran a pilot um, with that last year where we did a fitness one. And um, what was fitness was specifically around endurance. And then we ran a squash one, which was improving your, your back and back corners. So with Jesse and Gary, um, and then we kind of had ambition to explore it further this year. But then obviously lockdown happened, and suddenly we realised there was this opportunity to help players who didn't have access to a court remain squash fit. So that became what the what the focus of training club was. So yeah, we've we've launched this squash skills training club. It's it's been a bit of a revelation, really. Um, I mean, subscriptions spiked at the beginning of, of lockdown, and then they've kind of levelled off. People have um, you know not being able to play squash and get on court, subscriptions levelled off a little bit. But training clubs just been selling out week after week after week, and the really interesting thing about it, you've I mean—you've got this great advice coming coming from Gary, and then the Zoom calls with Jesse, and you know, you're getting your your training regime that you follow over six weeks, which is great. But uh, we've got these WhatsApp communities of 15 people, and really, it's that that you're recreating that kind of community essence that you get within the squash club, but then they're getting this source of motivation. Because they know that there's 15 other people who are going to go through the same pain today and then they're all posting selfies in the group of their tired faces and they're posting their results and um yeah it's just been it's just been awesome actually seeing the um the interaction that's going on there so that's something we're looking at expanding now we're, we're currently running one every two weeks and it's it's selling out well in advance so we're going to up the cadence and try and Try and run one weekly and then as some of the region different regions of the world are actually getting back on court we're going to try and roll out the um the on-court one with jesse so you'll be able to do a fitness one maybe to start doing some at the moment it's a generic kind of fitness one across all the the elements of fitness um but now we're going to we're going to launch a specific endurance focused one um, which will be a six-week endurance block and then there'll be this six-week block on court as well so yeah interesting you know obviously everybody's exploring the the remote nature of coaching and this is a slightly more interactive way that that's definitely working so yeah that's the the new product new are offering at the moment
1: one of the things i love about coaching jethro is just interaction with other coaches and hearing different coaches philosophies and ideas and you've probably been more fortunate than any of us that you've got to experience that from some of the the most high profile and most successful coaches in the world So i'm just curious if there's any coach that's really made you question your sort of philosophy or made you think about the game in a completely different way and not necessarily the best coach you've worked with but someone that really challenged your thinking and has opened you up to a new way way of looking at the game?
4: I think the most maverick really or the, the most different has got to be Malcolm in terms of, you know, the fact he just hasn't been on court with Sam Todd. Right, this, this blows my mind. Sam Sam Todd's what sixteen years old, and he's been coaching him since he was four. And Malcolm hasn't been on court with him. And you know, you look at DP, highly technical. You look at the work that Hadrian does, really focuses on movement and, and, and spends a lot of time on court with players. But Malcolm's setup of perching up at the top of that balcony and barking orders and commanding respect and making sure everyone's quiet is is really truly unique. And the interesting thing for me about Malcolm is that he the 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 coaching's subtle right he'll 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 sit at the top and he might just say rack it up and then a few minutes later he might say rack it up again and it's kind of letting people figure it out but they're in the program they're part of the process you know people come into that program at four and you know look at people like people like beach and james they're still in it almost 30 years later so people have always got people on court that they can watch and learn and develop from so i think malcolm's way of letting kids figure out some you know some pointers here and there is vastly different to a lot of people who you know one-on-one lessons if i think about the number of changes i will often try and make if i do a one-on-one with somebody about you know you know changing an elbow position or getting racket up specifically and working on that repetitively at the front of the court you know you feel like you can affect change quicker by by doing that in a one-on-one lesson but if you look at malcolm's approach he's kind of got this longer term uh i guess approach to to coaching and people will figure it out and they'll hit with players who are doing the right things you know you look at look at all the pontefract players they're all technically sound really aren't they i don't think there's anybody that isn't isn't technically proficient once they've gone through a pontefract kind of journey but you know you look at the way malcolm coaches and he's not a technical coach so i find that fascinating to be honest, and you look at the success. It's a a product of Malcolm, but it's also a product of that club and that environment and the supportive environment around the players. So that that one kind of stands out as in terms of uniqueness because it is all encompassing rather than just that 45 minute period on court X times a week with a coach, if, if that makes sense.
1: So almost a subtle variation on almost the Egyptian model where it's a lot of time on court There is structure to it but as you say it's probably less structured than traditional coaching and Mm. like you say the kids just get a range of experiences with kids that are older kids that are better but also kids that are weaker than them Um, and they just learn to
4: play the game through that well it's kids but it's also it's the pros you know that there's um there's no egos there you know you people are on court with lee or they're on court with james and they can hit the ball they get the opportunity to play with those guys and, and truly interact with them so yeah it's it's definitely there's plenty of playing but there's also a lot of there's lots of structured routines right but it's the the technical input is is definitely less than you know the one-on-one coaches which obviously we traditionally um traditionally look to as as coaches i guess um to so with with really elite players i think Every, every elite player in it most other programs probably has a fair amount of one-on-one time but that doesn't seem to exist to the to the same extent in Pontefract. we've actually got a um, well we've we've filmed uh, another documentary which will be the next one we release which is asking why is Pontyfract so successful um, so we've done a load of interviews with the likes of camps and James and and Kirsty and, and all the players we obviously did the original documentary with Malcolm but this one's quite insightful. Um, we're just, just starting to work on the edit now, which is just talking about the whole environment, um, which I think will be fascinating. Give a little bit more insight into into the you know, that that place. Did we hear it here first? You did.
0: <laughs>
2: hey,
4: yo. hey we here. <laughs> <laughs> Breaking Indeed. news. Indeed,
1: Jethro, Would you have any plans to look at Egypt? Because that's the other sort of coaching system, if you want to call it a system, that really yeah, course, intrigues me
4: yeah unfortunately we we had flights booked um to go and do a documentary on wadi daigler um, and film with kareem so we were meant to be over there for four days filming with with kareem darwish and i don't know i still haven't heard from the airline <laughs> i've got I've paid for my flights and i don't think i'm getting the money back um but i'll probably have to rebook so as soon as lockdown does lift that's Again, another, another exclusive here. You, you heard it here first, the, the Egyptian <laughs> Lots documentary. Lots of breaking
2: news. Yeah.
4: <laughs> this is a good day.
2: <laughs>
4: um, yeah, no, it's, it's in the pipeline. So, I mean, that's another one I'm genuinely fascinated to. trying to start 3,500 kids in the Wadi Daigler program, I believe. Um, so, yeah, getting over there for four days and, and understanding that. That's, um, that's the next big one in the pipeline. Cool. Um,
0: Well, before we go, we had a little piece on the episode where we talked about the GOAT, greatest of all time, Mm -hmm. just in in line with having covered a little bit of the Fantasy British Open where Jahangir won his 11th title. Um, Mm -hmm. Who, in your
4: humble opinion, embodies the GOAT? Jahangir's record's hard to get past, right? But if you're going to put somebody in a one-off match, across the whole career i don't <laughs> argue i don't think you can argue with with jehangir but in terms of you know a one-off win with the best performance and the I, you could see rammy winning you could see Ramy being beating jk i think but you can't argue with jk across the course of his career so that, our listeners
2: if our listeners could have seen Stuart's face as soon as Jethro said a one-off, he just lit up like a Christmas tree. <laughs> Hands He, knew, up it, in the he air. knew it was coming. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I, I, do you know what they would put? Shab, I wouldn't put shab. Yeah, I put shabs up there as well. There's, um you know, I mean, it's an impossible question. I went for,
1: Jethro, just like you, I went for Rami during that 2012-2013 season where he didn't lose a match as the, yeah. not necessarily the GOAT, but the greatest that anyone has ever played.
4: There you go. You know, Stu. You know. Exactly. <laughs> we know. We're on the same page.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, we had a couple of other ones we had. J.K. was was Chris's pick. Uh, yeah. I had Jonah Barrington. More because of the impact he had on the whole on the sport as a whole. Yeah. And the pioneer yeah. and got it off on the professional grounds. Started, excuse me, started the professional era and whatnot. But, uh, I mean, it's hard yeah. to argue with. Yeah, know. you can
4: argue. with. There's, there's, there's a few, aren't there?
0: Well, Jethro, uh, thanks a million. We, like I said in the start, we know you're a busy man and we appreciate you coming on and taking the time to speak about your documentary and squash skills. We love the work that you're doing for the global squash community and great to hear uh, that you're doing well and looking forward to the, the exclusives that you he- heard here first <laughs> uh, the the two new documentaries that hopefully won't uh, we won't be too long in the waiting to hear them well. Jethro thanks again man no
4: thanks guys it's been lovely to chat always, yeah. uh, always a pleasure
2: thank you <laughs> thanks Jethro
0: cheers man happy Bye. days <laughs> cheers there we go Jethro Bins, everyone. Thanks for coming on, big man. Okay, guys, we'll wrap it up there. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Jamal. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Really appreciate it. Thanks for your positive feedback to date. You can check us out on Twitter. We now have 20 followers, which got Stuart very excited. At ATC Squash Pod, You can check us out on Instagram and Facebook as well. Our podcast is on most podcast platforms, including iTunes and Spotify. If you do like what you hear, spread the word. Send it to your friends. And if you don't like what you hear, don't. (laughs) All right.
4: Good stuff, guys. That was awesome. My
1: Rami argument is rolling straight out of the neck.
0: <laughs> I think I have a good cross-court lob serve coming up. <laughs>